Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Garima Talar Kapoor. And I'm Sam Andrew. Today, Sam is talking online hate with Gail Nathanson from the Canadian Coalition to End Online Hate. Stick around later in the pod for that interview, an important and timely topic as we think about how to deal with the real-world implications of online hate, made all too readily visible by the Trump era, which just got a big friggin' pass by the United States Senate. Really glad to see that. We will also, of course, be talking about the details of reopening. Now that we've seen, I think, a truly frightening modeling presentation last week by Ontario Public Health officials. And we'll be talking a little bit about a report by the Financial Accountability Office released last week that confirmed that Ontario has experienced the largest economic decline on record due to the pandemic. But first, I thought for some levity, we should talk about Valentine's Day, or as our premier calls it, Valentine's Day. I kind of feel like it was like a restful weekend, a weekend of a lot of the holidays. Did you guys do anything exciting with your partner, significant others? Yeah, I mean, with my partner, we just kind of like hung out for most of the day because what else can you do but I also with my girls we did a Netflix party and we watched a movie called Namaste Wahala which is a Bollywood Nollywood mashup and it's about Blindian relationships or that's okay there's many subplots in this movie but the main plot is about an Indian man and a Nigerian woman and the entire movie takes place in Nigeria and I mean, my expectations were not high going into it. So I actually really enjoyed the film. And I think that while people are bored sitting at home and just need something to watch, I would encourage you to watch it. It's in English. So you don't need to be worried about subtitles or anything like that. And if you watch it through the Netflix, Google Chrome extension, then you can just chat with your friends the entire time. And it's a lot of fun. That's what I did. That sounds really nice. I watched yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I watched the opposite movie, I think, which was a movie with no plot, Monsoon. Do not advise. It was the guy from Crazy Rich Asians who just walks around Vietnam for 90 minutes, basically. But I did order delicious vegan donuts from Moss Ooh. on Bay Street, if anybody's in the market for donuts. So, yeah, it was a nice day. Are, are most donuts not vegan? Are like, are there... Like, well, the, it's the okay. it's the frosting, I think. That oh, right. Trips you up. right, 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 right. Because there'd be lots of butter and regular frosting. Yeah. Well, th- th- that's great. I just I had a couple drinks with some friends on Zoom, and we talked about our dogs. Very low key Valentine's Day over here, but I've been looking for an occasion to tell the story on the pod, and it's a story that combines both romance and politics and policy. And I thought that Valentine's Day might be a good time to tell you guys, and so. This is a story of my like early Toronto online dating life. And I had went on a date with a girl. I'll call her Stephanie, not her real name, but we'll go with Stephanie for the purposes of this story. And we went on on two dates and she worked for an NDP. And at the time I was sort of helping out like on a very low level, like just doing phone calls for the Kathleen Wynne leadership campaign. And I thought that I had said this somewhere early in the thing. And we talked about politics. We agreed on like most things. There were fun dates. So we did two dates and then a uh, third one rolls around. And she was like, we're talking about politics and uh, policy and she's like it's amazing like I never met you like canvassing or something like that like we both canvassed in Davenport like it why how did I we never run into each other and I was like oh well like I mean you canvassed for the NDP and I was at the time I was uh, canvassing for the liberals and I guess she had missed the fact that I had said this early in the head because I shit you not she she was like wait you're not and like stopped pausing I was like oh, yeah I thought I said this like a little while ago and she just takes an L and puts it on her forehead and she's like and like and I was like yeah like I I mean I'm not like and I sort of do my spiel that I always do about like I'm not like red till I die don't talk to me unless you're liberal like I'm a progressive first I just happen to work for but like but no, she, that, the date ended quite abruptly after that. Um, you can tell oh goodness. It, like, it moved to like looking for the phone kind of thing. And uh, yeah, and never spoke again after that. And it was it was the only time that anything like that has ever happened to me. And uh, politics and policy, it can both bring people together and drive people apart. 
I've heard a lot of these stories in the Trump era in like in American relationships, but yeah, your best progressive comes. So I don't understand that's taking partisanship to a whole level that I personally do not understand, but have a lot of respect for, for others. But I don't, I mean, I don't get it. And you're better for it, Chris. I'm sorry. Anyways, it's a, just one of the weirdest, definitely I in like the top five memorable bad dates that I've had in my life. But as politics and policy can drive people apart, I'm glad that it has brought us together on this podcast. So segue. let's nice. <laughs> segue Hall of Fame entry right there. Maybe let's jump right in with a reopening because last week, Ontario's Science Table announced that despite some recent progress in declining cases, was very glad to see that the B117 variant the, or the UK strain of COVID-19 the science table predicted would basically contribute to a growth of cases beginning in late February with ICU admissions jumping shortly there after that. So uh, Sam, what's going on with the modeling and uh, the government response right now? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll just try to summarize quickly because I'm sure most uh, folks have been following um, this with some detail, but basically we are going back to the old color-coded system that governed Ontario back in in the fall, early winter, before the stay-at-home order. Basically, only one public health unit, Niagara, is going to move to the gray zone or the strictest lockdown where restaurants and bars are still closed, except retail businesses are are reopening as long as capacity limits are maintained, which um, feels like a compromise they've made with the Federation of Independent Businesses. However, the vast majority of public health units, which includes Halton, Waterloo, Windsor, Hamilton, Durham, are moving to red, which allows indoor dining of up to 10, reopens casinos, bingo halls, very essential services, as well as sport and recreational facilities, meeting and event spaces. And then a whole host, nine others, including Ottawa, are moving to orange, where 50 plus or sorry, up to 50 are allowed to sit indoors in restaurant. Karaoke apparently becomes re-permitted gyms. And there's no capacity limits for retail. Movie theaters are allowed to reopen, etc. The remaining ones, largely in rural and northern Ontario, are moving to yellow or green, where there are relatively few meaningful limits. So, yeah, it looks like the modeling says we have a few weeks before the new variants take over and we are headed to an emergency. But we apparently are going to reopen for those few weeks. And... I should say all of this is true, except for Toronto, Peel, York, and then North Bay, where they're waiting another week to make the decision. North Bay's inclusion in that list is a bit odd because they have among the lowest overall rates in the province, but it sounds like it was on the advice of the local officer of health, which is a bit curious. So that's where we're going. Who's excited to for bingo? <laughs> so I have a couple of things that I, I want to emphasize about this. One... Like what the science modeling table told us is that we need to get the provincial R value, the R naught, below 0.7 to avoid a what they call it to be an exponential rise in cases. And so for us to be moving at all in the direction of reopening at this point seems extremely counterintuitive because Ontario has never had it below seven like even when we were moving before that's what's so baffling about this whole thing is the disconnect between the indicators and the framework which is like even in red is quite bad 40 plus cases per hundred thousand and our value of 1.2 which as math tells you means the curve is going up are opening like that it lifts the limits and it's just like Where's the disconnect? Like, I'm confused. And then they make yeah. other decisions, like they're postponing March break, seemingly because of the threat. And it's just like, none of this is coherent. Like, I could almost see if they were going to do certain things, like the retail at 25% capacity, and maybe say gyms to get people moving because they're still crazy in their homes. Like, you could see some measured approach, given the curve falling. And have people like come along for a few weeks, see how it goes. But like meeting spaces, casinos, like what message is that sending other than the stay at home order is over? Please go eat in a restaurant with 49 of your closest friends. Like it doesn't, it's not coherent. No. Well, and I think, and in absence of anything else that public health tells you, you need to control 
the pandemic. Like, I, f- I mean, it, it feels like we're just, we're saying the same thing again and again, right? Like the absence of broad economic measures that support workers and businesses are absent from the Ontario government. You, the vaccination rollout is largely TBD for a majority of the population. And so we've got reopening happening with a, and I saw on Twitter today, somebody say people that are anti-lockdown or shutdown are negotiating with the virus, right? Like you're trying to have a conversation or you're you're anti-virus and that's something you can't be. Like it just is. And the virus is going to mutate or not. And the way that it grows is just going to be. And so we have in our capacity a limited set of tools to help limit the spread of COVID. And it's not because we're people are scared, of course, but it's also because it it has downstream impacts on your capacity to get healthcare services when you need it. And yep. so we're going to be reopening without actually thinking about hospital capacity, clearing this backlog that all, that many hospitals have right now on on elective surgeries. And you're going to see downside increases in other illnesses and preventable deaths. And I just, for the life of me, just don't, I just don't understand how we're still here a year out. So what the government, I think, would say is that Everyone's freaking out too much. Peel, Toronto, York, and North Bay are like the lockdown is still in effect until next week. We're going to use the best data to reevaluate that choice. This is where most of the people are. It's the parts of the province that aren't aren't seeing as being impacted. And the economy is really hurting out there. And why punish rural Ontario for stuff that's happening in Toronto? And it's like, we saw people from Toronto go to York region. If I can go to, if I live in York region, Durham, I grew up in York region. Durham is a 20 minute drive away mm-hmm. and I can go to a restaurant and get my hair cut. Like mm-hmm. people are going to do that. And at no point in this pandemic has it stayed local. Like the regional approach to reopening, I understand intellectually why that might be a tempting choice. But like when you're facing the kind of growth that the science table is telling us. And as they basically all but admitted was a pending disaster, given what the province is doing. When asked by a press by a TVO reporter, John Michael McGrath. Yeah, it, like they, it's based on everything we've seen, we're heading towards a third wave. And the most infuriating thing is when Doug Ford was pressed on this on Friday, he went back to the line that it's in Ontario's hands now. It's in the hands of Ontarians. That was his ac- actual quote. And actually, at no point during this pandemic have I wanted to throw my phone out the window <laughs> as much because it's just like, it just, it's like, it's, it just felt like a slap in the face. Like, like, do you not understand? Like, are you, like, has nobody told you? Have you not seen what your own science table is saying? Like, and I can't imagine any of that's true. So, like, it's it seemed pretty pretty cynical to me. But so. isn't it like just a last point from the government's perspective in support of small businesses and restaurants, like to ask them to bring in supplies, food, workers for, a, let's say, several weeks. Like, dep- hopefully, we. I mean, I'm hopeful that we don't have to lock down again. Yeah. But it's. Who knows if we'll actually get there or not, but it's likely that we will. And so in that circumstance, you've got businesses who are going to have lots of food and that they, like, I just don't understand what planning is going to look like for businesses without any type of predictability about where things are going and no support. Again, just got to make the plug again for workers who have been working throughout this entire time, lockdown or no lockdown. It, It just, for essential workers, it just doesn't make sense there's there's a brokenness in there and with the message around it's in ontarians hands in my view that's a complete abdication of responsibility at that point right like there's a duty of government to to control this and a collective responsibility i just think about being a like if i were a server in ottawa for instance like right now i'm getting EI because I can't go to work because my place of work is shut down due to COVID. I'm getting federal assistance. 
I, it might not be as much as I was making, but it's at least something. And under this, all of those people are basically being made to go back to work. And there will be folks who can continue to stay home and the rates of infection will be lower amongst those folks who can continue to stay home. But if you are a service worker and your business is reopening in response to this framework, you don't really have a choice. Under the current system, you cannot continue to access that federal support. You can't stay home. And if you get sick in Ontario, you're not covered with paid sick days, which all of this we've talked about extensively. But I do really want to, like, before we leave the topic, not lose the burden that this is putting on working people and the increased risk that it is exposing them to. And for the Ford government to say it's in our hands now, it makes me think that those, like, the people who are being made to return to work, made to, are invisible to them, don't matter. Like, it's it, two weeks of revenue for a restaurant is worth more than the overall safety of the province and these people's lives. I know that we've all like, we're at kind of outrage fatigue, I think too, which is, and the government knows that. And, but I just, this false narrative about the economy is just so ridiculous. Cause as we've seen from hard evidence, the jurisdictions that have pursued the harshest lockdowns that then produce a COVID zero such that the economy really can actually open, not this like, 50 person restaurant thing are doing the best because you can't have an economy when people don't feel safe going out and shopping and eating and whatever and but like the ship has sailed clearly no jurisdiction outside of the maritimes is pursuing that strategy in here in canada and i like it doesn't feel like they're being challenged about that adequately if i'm making sense but no anyway Something for opposition, and it's true, like outrage, even as I listen to myself talk about this, I am getting tired because we've been saying it for so long. But this week was the most angry I have been about it in a long time as well. It seems like it's an escalating every week, but I felt like it's an important, it was important for us to talk about because it's like, to emphasize at least for our listeners how serious this situation is and how, you know, much this government has fallen asleep at the wheel. If folks are getting COVID fatigue listening to us, I, I certainly feel like and I wish we could talk about something that wasn't this. But this week was just such a clear siren that I felt that we would sort of just had to come back to it. Maybe moving to the economic impacts of the pandemic, the FIO had some interesting stuff this week based talking a little bit about the overall impact the pandemic has had on our economy. So Grima, I'm curious if you can walk us through some things that the FIO said about what we can expect the next couple of years as vaccines and we start to bounce back from this thing. Sure. Thanks, Chris. As you noted last week, the FAO released its winter 2021 economic and fiscal outlook. There's a lot in the paper, and I encourage everyone to take a close look, but I'll provide some of the Coles notes here. But really, it's actually very good and very clear. So I really do think people should Google it and take some time to read it. So as a result of the pandemic and associated shutdowns, the FAO projects that Ontario will ex- experience a 5.9% drop in real GDP in 2020. This is the largest annual decline in economic output on record. If things go as hoped from here on out, so vaccines are distributed to the general population over the course of 2021 and government lockdown restrictions are slowly eased in a way that protects public health and economic activity returns to a semblance of normal, Ontario's economy is expected to rebound with growth of 3.9% in 2021 and then 4.5% in 2022. So Grima, what does that what does that decline sort of look like in terms of what people experience in terms of joblessness and also from the government perspective? Yeah, so well, I guess from just from a real GDP output dropping 5.9% is quite significant. But Ontario's employment fell by a record of 1.1 million jobs from February to, to May of 2020, increased a little bit after May 2020 and during the, the spring-summer period of last year by about 730,000 jobs. But then on average for 2020, we're down about 400,000 jobs compared to our pre-pandemic levels. And as the economy improves through 2021, again, with all of the the hopes and dreams that we have about pandemic control coming to fruition, job growth will rebound, but employment level is not projected to reach its pre-pandemic peak until 2022. So we're looking for we're looking at another year out. And then this, of course, has a fiscal policy impact. The pandemic caused a sharp decline in revenue because our tax base 
decreased and an increase in program spending leading to a budget deficit of $35.5 billion in 2021. But I think that it's really important to note here that much of the program spending increases in 2020 and 2021 is due to temporary COVID-19 expenditures. Outside of these temporary expenditures, planned program spending growth in key sectors, including healthcare and education, is not expected to keep pace with underlying demand for public services over the next two years. And that is huge. Like if we've seen anything through this pandemic, it's the importance of public services. It's the importance of ensuring that we have strong, we have strong public services that meet the needs of people when they need them. And we actually don't have a plan for doing that. We're actually underfunding. And so friends, there's a lot of numbers that I talked about, but the upshot is that the economy is expected to recover if we get the pandemic under control. And our budget deficit projections do not include investments in public services that keep up with demand. So in in taking an equity perspective on this, do you think that this keeps or this sets us up for an inclusive recovery post-pandemic? Not looking good, Grima. <laughs> I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, yeah, no, I like hearing that all at once is a little overwhelming because like we have all the ingredients like i think we saw a sharper recovery that like that upswing even though potentially full recovery to by 2022 i think is not the kind of prolonged recession that some were worried about it shows that some of the economic interventions that were made had some success probably could have had more success but some of them did. But that's where you get into this idea of a K-shaped, where folks, if we do not have, if public services are not meeting demand right now and continue to not meet demand, and we continue to have people not have what they need to succeed. And I think that is frustrating for those of us, all of us here, who maybe hope that this was a chance to maybe reset some of that social uh, safety net. I mean, a lot of it depends on politics. A lot of it depends on the policy and who we elect over the next couple of years and that we will have elections. And so I expect it to be a big question, but if it's the current players, the current plan and the current, there's no changes. I think the FAO is telling us that we're looking at things getting more difficult for people at the bottom instead of, instead of better. Yeah. Like, I mean, just to put some figures around the public services question, Expected base program expense growth in health, for example, is projected to be about 2.9% over the growth period of 2021-2022 through to 2022-2023. But the demand drivers actually are calling for a 4.6% increase in, in healthcare expenditures. In education, base program expense growth is is pegged at 1.6%, whereas demand drivers are calling for 2.9%. And then in children's and social services, uh, program expense growth is projected at 0.2%, whereas demand drivers are, this is so crazy, the gap, the demand drivers are at 3.3%. And I could go on for the other program areas, justice, there's a big gap, post-sec, there's a big gap. And so, yeah. I just, and it's going to get worse, right? Like, let's just the, the, like investing in people is not in this government's bones. They've proven that time and time again. And so a $16 billion persistent deficit coming out of the pandemic will be used because they're not going to increase revenue, right? It will be used yeah. as an excuse to cut those things further. And all the things that people need to have an inclusive recovery, as you say, Grima, are going to rely on the feds. And so, as Chris said, the election, whenever the federal election comes and then the provincial election 2022, I think are going to matter a whole lot for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> cool. Well, before we go to the interview, maybe do a quick rapid fire because there were some good, there were some good ones this week. Evan Solomon had Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister on his show and questioned Manitoba's Premier as to why only 2% of rapid tests provided by the federal government had been used in Manitoba. This is not just a Manitoba problem. The rapid test that the federal government pursued very much at the 
very public criticism of all the provincial premiers are sitting at abysmal usage rate across the country. Quebec, I think, has used less than 1%. So, But Manitoba is in that group. And in response to the criticism, Brian Pallister said, the Red Wings should have won the Stanley Cup last year too, but the fact of the matter is it's over and they didn't. Such an abdication of responsibility. I'm just, just, that's it. That's my rapid fire response. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think just on the topic of things that haven't really been, that the public discourse has not been that great on is I'm not actually sure the politicians don't want to use the rapid tests, right? Like it's very much, I think, driven by public health's concern that about their accuracy but i don't feel like that's really been like had out in public anyway sorry that that wasn't that failed the rapid fire test uh time limit hey if there's no time limit we have our own definition of rapid here on ontario loud <laughs> uh, i agree with that sam and i think that like multiple times i wish the media did a better job of providing a little bit more context to these things however i think there's a dynamic that is very clearly settling in where everyone who is involved in covering covid and maybe dealing and making decisions around COVID day to day, I'm quite worried about the leadership sort of feeling fatigue and like they have the right to be dicks to people and to just like kind of not care about specific things because of the burden that they've carried. Like that seems human to me. Mm -hmm. And then also the media sort of taking, getting frustrated and mad at that and sort of like using whatever story to kind of shove dirt at the, like it's just not a good dynamic for actually telling people what to do. So yeah, that wasn't a rapid fire response either, but also the Red Wings, Brian, like Detroit is like, it's an American team. Like (laughs) you got the Winnipeg Jets. In yeah. Manitoba. That's a, good, that's a very good point. <laughs> okay, Trump gets acquitted. Any thoughts on Trump getting acquitted? I mean, of course he did. It's a broken democracy. Yeah, absolutely. I have nothing to say about it except for not surprised, very heartbroken. But yeah, of democracy around the world, India, the US, I'm just over it. I let my heart feel like a glimmer of hope when Mitch McConnell like sort of toyed with saying that what he did was worthy of, you know, impeachment. But of course, we settled back to normal habits. It does remind me of what we were saying. Like, I watched Thomas Piketty's Capital, the, the Netflix documentary of his book, and he does a that documentary. I would highly recommend. Does a very good job of tying rising inequality, like we talked about in our last segment, with the power of these far right movements and like doing repeated calls to history throughout history as to when these far right movements have gained power and tying it to mass accumulation of wealth. So if you want a real worrying evening, highly recommend that as a documentary watch. This is one I put in here for me, friends. I understand if nobody has any rapid fire takes on this, but me, but indie singer songwriter, Phoebe Bridgers smashed her guitar on Saturday Night Live last week, prompting rock and roll legend, David Crosby to describe the stunt as pathetic. Does anyone here know what I'm talking about? Or is this just content that I put in here for me? I think if you describe someone as a rock and roll legend, the name should be familiar. And I know, sorry, Chris. I I saw it on Twitter. Like my Twitter was ablaze with the issue, but like I personally just scrolled right by. I'm sorry, Chris. That's okay. For those on the pod, I adore Phoebe Bridgers. I think that she is like, a generational songwriting talent and a hilarious, wonderful person. And I get my back up whenever I see old boomer white men talking about younger women doing things as pathetic or so I got my back up a little bit, but you know, it was nice to like get mad about something that doesn't have life or death consequences for me and the people around me and the people that I love. So yeah, listeners, if you were wondering where I stood on the Phoebe Bridgers issue, strongly pro Phoebe. Cool. got that out there. All right. Well, uh, that's it for today. We're going to take a quick break, talk to you a little bit about Patreon, and then we will be back with Sam's interview with Gail Nathanson. Stick around. Hey, so before the end of the interview, I just want to talk about some of the ways that you can support the pod as a listener. So the first way is to go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and sign up for one of the tiers of support. This is a low monthly amount from $3 to $5 to more if you'd like that helps us do things like pay for our technology costs, our hosting costs, bring on more people to help with graphic design, with 
communications with research uh, and ultimately allows us to do more and dream bigger as a pod. Thank you to those uh, of you who already do support. You've helped make this possible to date. And if you like what you're hearing and you haven't yet, uh, head to patreon.com slash Ontario Lab today. You can also head to the iTunes store and leave us a star review and even better, write something in the comment about how you like the pod. This helps us greatly with the iTunes algorithm, which helps the pod generally. Understand times are tough. Uh, if you don't have cash, head to the iTunes store and leave us a review. All right, that's enough housekeeping. On to the interview. All right, so... Hate speech is obviously not a new phenomenon in Canada, but many are rightfully concerned about the role that online platforms like social media are playing in fueling and weaponizing that hate. Uh, individuals and groups have been sounding the alarm really across the country, but including here in Ontario, uh, Asian Canadians, especially in the context of, of COVID-19, Indigenous people, Jewish Canadians, Muslims, Arabs, women, the queer community, the list goes on. The federal government recently designated the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization, which is, in fact, I didn't know this until I looked it up, the sixth white supremacist or neo-Nazi group that's been designated as such in the last few years in Canada. And federal minister of heritage, uh, Gibo, has signaled that legislative change is going to be coming to introduce requirements for these platforms to address illegal content like hate speech. Details are still pretty scarce, but um, you know, anytime a government moves to regulate or limit free expression, people... I think rightfully ask many questions. It's a tricky subject. So to dive into that today, we are pleased to welcome Gail Nathanson, the Associate Director of External Affairs for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Thanks, Gail, for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So can you help me, you know, set the context? How big of an issue is online hate in Canada and Ontario right now? So a couple of things. Um, first of all, we have to remember that online hate is hate. First and foremost, it's hate. It's just a different way to spread the hate than um, we may have done in the past. So I like to say it's the same old hate, but in a new and very powerful delivery system. So to understand the problem of online hate, it's important to understand the problem of hate generally. Um, and just to give you an idea, um, just looking at some statistics from Stats Canada and some other groups from um, most their most recent reports, the victims of hate crimes in Canada, um, there's a number of groups that are most targeted. Um, some would find it surprising, those in my community don't necessarily, that, Jew that um, the Jewish community continues to be the most targeted group for hate crimes in Canada. This is according to 2018 statistics, followed closely by the Black Canadian community, the Muslim Canadian community, and um, those that are targeted for their sexual orientation. Um, Toronto has similar kinds of statistics. In 2018, 40, more than 42% of hate crimes committed in, in, on, in Toronto were committed against um, members of the Jewish community, um, followed by high numbers in the Muslim community, LGBTQ plus community, Black women, um, and then other groups as well. So, and um, Ontario wears, has the proud honor of being Canada's hate crime capital. Uh, again, according to 2018 data from Stats Canada, we uh, are almost double um, the number of hate crimes than, than anywhere else in the country. So I think that's really important to note again, when you talk about hate, whether it's online or otherwise, you have to look at it in, in that broader context. The thing is that hate, although it may not be new, the internet and online communications have brought the problem of hate and racism and discrimination to a whole new level. I'm going to talk in a minute um, about the difference between a hate crime and hate. Um, but it's important to remember, again, that this this um, problem, although not new, is a whole new scope now that it can spread so quickly over the internet. And I like to remind people that it used to be if you wanted to say something hateful, racist, um, targeting a, a particular group, you had to say it out loud. You know, it's the old bully in the schoolyard thing. You had to say it face to face. You had to have the guts to do it. Um, and other people around you would have heard it. But now um, you can be safely tucked behind a computer screen um, and you can spread your message as widely and as quickly as you want to with the push of a button. And not only that, you can target an entire community of, pe of people, not just a, a specific individual. 
and you're anonymous while you do it. So it's a, it's it's a an easy way to be a hater. And I think it's it's important to remember that online hate's kind of like a double whammy because it's it has a significant traumatic impact on the targets of that message in even in its online form. So whether it's an individual or a group, um, we talk about in the Jewish community, but in any community, if you're targeted for who you are, it often it's it's frightening, um, it's disconcerting, um, and it often makes you want to hide your identity of who you are, whether it's online or otherwise. But but on top of that, online hate can spread into real world violence. And we've seen uh, numbers of examples of that. We saw that in Washington, um, at the siege of the Capitol just a few weeks ago. We've seen it at mosques. We've seen attacks at mosques in Quebec City and Christ Church and Toronto. We've seen attacks on synagogues in Poway, Pittsburgh and Halle. And we've seen a van travel down Young Street and plow down a bunch of people targeting women in specific, although he got a whole bunch of people. So. So again, it, there's there's a double-edged whammy to online hate. It's it's um, it targets people and it has a real impact on people, even in its online form. But then it can it can spread into um, fatal violence in the real world as well. Thanks. That's really helpful. And I think you know the illustration of the real-world impacts, as you say at at the end there, are a good reminder. I think so. So CJO of which you're a part, um, is, is a part of the Canadian coalition to end online hate, uh, which is a, a new organization from what I understand. So can you yeah. tell us kind of more about that coalition and, and what it's hoping to achieve? Sure. So, um, CJ, actually, we like to use the word powers, this coalition. We, we started this coalition, which we've, we've now called the Canadian coalition to combat online hate. And I'll tell you why in a minute. So CJ has been working on the issue of online hate for a while, a number of years um, in in different perspectives. Um, But we knew that there was a lot of other organizations and communities working on it as well. CJ, as a representative of the organized Jewish community, our lens that we bring to the issue of online hate and and all forms of of racism and discrimination, obviously we come from the personal experience of anti-Semitism, but we share concerns about racism and discrimination against any group and all groups. And we have always held the belief and continue to hold the belief that uh, we're stronger together and our message is stronger together and what impacts us impacts you and what impacts you impacts us. So we thought it just made sense to join forces with other communities and other organizations to, to who are also worried about online hate to come together and form this group. We're now at about 40 plus organizations growing every day, representing a diverse array of communities, other faith-based communities, the LGBTQ plus community, women's organizations, um, like the whole ethnic organizations, um, organizations representing the black community, a whole range of organizations who care about it. And we came together. um, And at the beginning, we were urging the government to come up with a national strategy to combat online hate. And I guess they heard us because to your point, um, they're about to table legislation we hear any day now. Um, It's been going on for probably about a year and a half now. In the last parliament, um, they held committee hearings um, at the Justice Subcommittee at the federal level where a number of our our partner organizations testified. There was a report issued. And then when um, in the, the current parliament, they continue with consultations and are about to table reports. Uh, table legislation, excuse me. So as a coalition, we called for um, a a number of things that we actually did see reflected in some of the recommendations of the committee. Uh, Some of the key things we've asked for are to ensure that um, various elements of the justice sector receive sufficient training on how to apply existing laws dealing with hate um, and online hate. And that includes law enforcement, crown attorneys, judges, the whole gamut there's there's a lot of nuances around um, what constitute hate, what constitutes hate. Um, and also there's a lot of nuance around what constitutes a hate crime versus um, other other experiences of hate. We we've asked that there be a that that, that Statistics Canada try to address the gap in data collection. And, and to your point at the beginning, under better understanding the scope of the issue of online hate. We don't have good data on that. Uh, and we believe that to um, appropriately address the problem, you have to fully understand the problem, and data is key to that. Um, we're looking to, again, to your point at the outset, um, to balance the need to combat online hate with, of course, the equally important requirement to protect our freedom of expression. So there has to be um, a good definition of hate when it comes to particularly criminal sanctions, 
Um, Supreme Court of Canada has defined what hate and hatred means in those contexts, and we should be looking at that. Same that we would we want to look at the idea of a civil remedy in addition to the criminal sanctions that currently exist. And we've talked about looking at um, strong and clear regulations for online platforms and internet service providers um, in terms of how they monitor and transparently address incidents of hate um, that are spread on their platforms. So we will see what happens uh, when the legislation comes out. As I said, we're, we're hearing it's going to be in the next couple of weeks. So, I mean, there's lots to unpack there. Maybe I'll just pick up first on the, the sure. civil remedy. So, you know, for, for those not following this closely, the Canadian Human Rights Act used to have a provision about uh, online hate. Uh, yeah. It's called Section 13 that was repealed by the Harper government in 2014 and was not without its controversy about how it was you know, implemented. But this is obviously being looked at again. So mm -hmm. can you just sort of unpack that issue a bit more about what, what does a civil remedy mean? Sure. So as I mentioned, there are provisions in the criminal code dealing with hate. They're very narrow. It's a very high threshold, as it should be, to, to charge somebody with uh, a crime under those provisions. They're pretty specific. They include things like public incitement of hatred or the willful promotion of hatred against a specified identifiable group. You need special permission of the um, attorney general in order to, to to lay those charges. And again, that's appropriate. I mean, we're talking about balancing, um, you know, like like a criminal sanction for what people say is is a very very um, serious response and needs to be taken seriously. There is a civil remedy under the Human Rights Act to allow individuals to seek uh, remedy or redress against an individual who who infringed on their human rights, like from a human rights perspective, with hateful speech that was, um, as you said, repealed by the uh, by in 2014. So we think that a civil remedy is important because because the criminal threshold is so high. Um, most things won't fall under, most incidents of hate will not fall under the technical definition of a, uh, hate under the criminal code. So we think there should be some kind of civil remedy, but we think it's really important that, that what it is, is arrived at in consultation with key stakeholders, including targeted groups and legal experts who can help ensure that any kind of remedy does address that really important balance between protecting freedom of speech and protecting individuals from hate. Um, but I, I think what, something that's really important to keep in mind is that addressing online hate is a, is its complex problem, and we think it requires a multifaceted approach. So, in addition to criminal sanctions or civil remedies, we think there could be other uh, ways to address online hate and provide victims or targets of online hate options outside of those systems to seek redress. So, so we're exploring. We have a summit coming up mid-April. Um, that's going to be put together uh, by the coalition, and we're building the program out for it right now. But one of the things we're going to explore are different options that may be available to put, basically to put victims of online hate back in the driver's seat and give them the opportunity to seek different kinds of remedies that they may um, be interested in. So we may, we're going to explore ideas of transformative justice models. We're going to explore the idea of some kind of tribunal system where people who are targeted can essentially have their opportunity to be heard, to, to, to express how, that, how the incident impacted them and to seek some form of redress, but without the need to go with lawyers and through a really complicated system um, to do so. Um, we'll look at models in other jurisdictions in Australia. They have something called an e-safety commission that might be an interesting model. Um, there's, we'll look at ideas of how sometimes people just, just want something, particularly they're being targeted individually. They just need it to be easier to get, to get that taken down. So you hear a lot about this in terms of cyber misogyny and, um, hate targeting specific women. And at the end of the day, they just want the stuff taken down. And, and we're going to look at, um, ways that we might be able to explore assisting individuals have um, making it easier for them to do that without having to hire a lawyer to go to court and uh, just have it easier. I mean, part of that's part of that, as I said, is about getting platforms and providers to be more transparent about what um, how people can launch. Uh, what do you call it? Like put in a complaint report, yeah, yeah. report, yeah, and and make it easier to do that. So we, so civil remedy is one thing that we're looking at, but we think there could be a range of remedies to address this issue. 
And maybe just picking up on that on that last point around the platforms, social media platforms, you know, as someone who's been watching this for a while, it's sort of interesting how the tide has turned. Yes. If I'm like uh for a very long time they were defending the platforms, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ability of people to organize in groups around political issues, but that had clear, you know, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, um, anti-Muslim, anti-Black sentiments, um, you know, really since the U.S. Capitol riots, I mean, a bit before, in fairness to them, but certainly since it has really accelerated the deplatforming of Trump himself, of um, of a bunch of these groups, like as someone who's been thinking about this issue for a long time too, like, do you worry about this being in the hands of these private American companies? Like, what is the role of, you know, like democratic governance in these decisions? But, you know, the government's regulating speech is complicated too. Like, can you just reflect a bit on that too? Yeah, I mean, you you make a good point. It's really complex. Look, lots of things people don't pay attention to except that people are really paying attention until they're on the front page of the paper. I mean, another great example of that is what happened last summer with um, the murder of George Floyd. And all of a sudden, everybody cared about anti-Black racism. Well, those who've been working on that issue for literally half a century or 200 years would say anti-Black racism is not new. But but now that we have your attention, we're actually going to take advantage of that and start really using this huge platform to promote our message. So, you know, yes, I mean, I guess the regu- the, the the platforms and providers were maybe a little bit slow off the market. To be fair, I think they have some legitimate, you know, it's easy for me who knows nothing about this stuff to say, you should be taking these posts down. I actually have no idea what's involved in doing that. And I'm I'm quite confident it's not as easy um, as I think it is and that there's huge volumes to deal with. I think the fact that the whole world is paying attention to it now and is pushing them to respond is great. So whatever the motivation, whatever the intention, even if they were dragging their feet, which I don't actually know if they were or not, doesn't matter. Now that now they have the attention and a lot of small p political pressure on them to do something. Um, I think it's also all tied up with a lot of, you know, what happened around um, use of platforms in terms of the elections. And I mean, going back even to the 2016 election in the U.S., there's been lots more understanding around it. And and look, as users, we have responsibilities around that, too. I mean, I think we all need to start to be more thoughtful about reposting stuff, sharing stuff, tweeting stuff you know, inadvertently sharing disinformation, hateful information, because we don't think about the impact, we may not, we may not understand that something that comes across our feed is is offensive to another group. But if we took like maybe a couple minutes to think about it before we hit the share button, maybe we wouldn't do it. If we had, if we took two minutes to talk to somebody to say, what was your response to that meme or that tweet, maybe we wouldn't share it. So I think for sure, industry has a responsibility. I think we all have a responsibility in making sure that 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 hate doesn't spread at the at the lightning speed that it's doing. Right. So maybe just in the interest of time, last question. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a provincial podcast. So we like to you know focus on what could the province of Ontario be doing. Uh, yeah. uh, listeners may not know. I didn't until recently that Ontario became the first province to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism by order and council last year. And that yeah. definition is not somewhat without its controversy, but maybe yeah. we don't have to get into all that today. But yeah. I guess from your perspective, what else could the province be doing on this issue that feels a bit federal just because it's about the regulation yeah. of platforms? But what's the role of the province? So, I mean, I think it's a good, it's it's a really good point. It is, I mean, we think of it as a federal issue because regulation of the industry might be federal and criminal um, criminal law is federal jurisdiction. But again, first of all, online hate doesn't respect borders. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's Canadian jurisdiction, but in fact, it's kind of this weird nobody's jurisdiction issue, um, which is one of the things that makes it challenging. And, and going back to what I said, I think as Ontarians, we all have a role to play as consumers of online services on uh, users of platforms and providers. We have responsibilities to, to, to be uh, what we call responsible digital citizens and be thoughtful about what we're sharing. In Ontario, we are working with the anti-racism directorate to explore how their work could be 
um, kind of integrated into and could be layered on top of um, thinking around online online activity. And so that's kind of a, a provincial, like a real provincial um, engagement level that we're working on. But again, I think I I think online hate is kind of non-jurisdictional. It really it's 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 the responsibility of all of us to be thoughtful and to be good, not only good digital citizens, but like good citizens of humanity and how we treat one another. And just because we can't see the person on the other side of the meme or on the other side of the tweet, or we can't see the millions and millions of people, it shouldn't make us um, less thoughtful about the impact of our words and actions on others. And I think that's that's what I would hope that we all think of as we um, continue engaging in this way. That's great. That's super thoughtful. Well, thank you very much, Gail, for taking the time. It was great to unpack this issue a bit more. Thank you for having me. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andry. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps to support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.